looking today at the conversion of Saul. It's in Acts, in the book of Acts, around about chapter 9, chapter 9, yep. So it's hard to understand the magnitude of the change involved in that, in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It's sort of like black has become white, like a lion has become a lamb, like your worst enemy becomes your beloved leader. And if you are trying to get a picture from contemporary society about something similar, it might be like one of our current premiers in another state becoming a Christian. And instead of his dogged determination to tear down every Christian heritage he can find, it was like him getting converted and turning around and starting to support the Australian Christian lobby and starting to make Australia the great Southland of the Holy Spirit. It's that type of magnitude for something like that to happen. And perhaps you may know us all. You know, a pig-headed, iron-willed, stubborn, determined person who could do amazing things if only they were trying to do it for a worthwhile goal instead of what they're trying to do, which is obviously just wrong. And Saul was this type of guy, determined, highly zealous, passionately focused, unfortunately focused on a blatantly wrong endeavour. We pause for a moment of prayer as we consider what happened. Gracious Lord, as we read what happened to Saul here, we want to tread lightly and take our sandals off, so to speak, because what you did was amazing and we want to come and approach it with reverence and respect. So teach us, we pray. Amen. So Acts 9 starts off. Oh, I better catch up with this. See if my Duvalaki works. Uh, praise the Lord. All right, Acts 9, verse 1. Thanks, Sam. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might then take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And that description there seems to me like many a modern movie. You've got the evil empire, they're going house to house to find the rebels, high drama, high stakes. You're afraid because they might come in the night, they might drag you away and you'll never come back, you'll be never seen again. Well, that's basically what he was doing. Simply on the basis of the fact that they believe something different, he's aggressively claiming the right to imprison people because he's, he's using and misusing the law to do this. He's the extreme right on steroids. And who amongst us wouldn't just write him off? He's dangerous. He's deluded. He's obnoxious. You can't reason with him. And he doesn't care whether you're male or female because he's not worried about breaking up a family, about caring for defenceless kids. He'll just take the parents away. He's in a zone, he's in a tunnel of religious fanaticism and is what the world most fears today. He's a militant 
fundamentalist. And there's no reasoning with them. That's why they're, why they're afraid of them, why the world's afraid, afraid of these people, because only death will stop them. And so you ask yourself, why would Jesus want this guy? Why would he want someone like this? So my guess is it's because he knows that if that passion and zeal can be employed for truth and righteousness, then you're going to have a mighty, powerful weapon for good rather than for the bad. And I assume as you think about someone like this, most of us would say, well, he's caused that much pain, that much aggravation, we don't really want him to get off lightly. And if you are one of those sort of people, you might find comfort in that Acts 9 verse 16, when it says there, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I think, you know, we all like a, we all have a bit of a revenge thing going, don't we? You see a movie and the baddie gets it in the end and you go, yes. Well, I think those with that desire for revenge against abusers will enjoy the ongoing thorn in the flesh which Paul had. And as I thought about that, I thought that might have come out of his conversion experience. Consider these verses about this thorn in the flesh before we go too much further in the story. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations, and this is our part of it, therefore in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So there's a thorn in the flesh. Let's look in Galatians 6.11, where it says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Well, probably his eyesight wasn't very good. He had to write big. And then... Look at Galatians 4.15. Where then is your blessing of me? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And you go, it's a bit of a strange thing to say. Why would you you'd so love someone so much you'd tear out your eyes? Oh, maybe because his eyesight was not good. So you think, could that flaw in the flesh have been Paul's eyesight? Well, Let's look at Acts 9 verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Paul is blinded by the light. It was a light from heaven, a spotlight which shone all around him, and the, and the context gives us no reason to doubt that this was not during the daytime, so it was probably during day, it's a hot Damascus sun. It's already bright. And you know it's dangerous to look at the sun. But now you've got a light, brighter than the sun even, shining all around Saul. And it's quite reasonable to expect 
that there might have been long-term effects on his eyesight from that brightness of light. But anyway, that's speculation. The important point is verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say, Saul, why do you persecute the believers? He says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And it's a very profound exposition of what it means when you become a Christian, that you become part of the body of Christ. And when his children are persecuted, it's as though Jesus himself is persecuted. Hurt one of us and you hurt Jesus. And the enemy will want to whisper into your ear over and over, oh, you're on your own, mate. No one knows. No one cares what's going on for you. Well, here's the exact opposite view. Jesus is in any persecution with you. You are never alone. You are never separated from his love. He's always with you, and indeed he's actually within you, for you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul has run into a brick wall, stopped in his tracks quite literally, led into a city and left in complete blackness for three days. He's literally entered the dark night of the soul. And we see that he takes this very seriously as an intense, an intensely spiritual experience. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. And we know from God's instruction to Ananias that he's praying during those three days. And as he's praying now, I wonder if this is the time he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 12. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Perhaps that's what he was doing in those three days. But that's a secret thing. He comes back to what he can say publicly in Acts 22. Acts 22 verse 6. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions, this is Paul speaking now, my companions saw the light, though they didn't understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said. Go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all you've been assigned to do. And my companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Yes, the brilliance of the light blinded Saul. And so let's continue the story now, back to chapter 9, verse 10. In Damascus there was this disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house on Judas, of Judas on Straight Street, and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. 
And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on brother on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you we were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales, it wasn't scales, but something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up. And what do you do when you get up? You got baptised straight away. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So in that story, there's some amazing supernatural intervention of God, isn't there? First, there's a light brighter than the day, and it comes with words spoken aloud. And then you've got Ananias, who is told, he tells Ananias, go off to Paul, and that if you lay on his hands and pray, he'll restore his sight. And then he tells Paul that Ananias is coming, and that his prayer will restore his light, completely independent. They did not text one another, I have it on good authority. In verse 12, in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And chapter 22 has got a few more details. Uh, firstly, it expounds a little bit more. So Acts 22, 13, how, to, how did the prayer of Ananias go? He stood beside me and he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I was able to see him. And then there's a charge from Ananias. In Acts 22.14, he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, to see the righteous one, and hear words from his mouth, and you will be his witness to all people of what you've seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised, wash your sins away, calling on his name. Was it a dinkum change? Well, you can tell if someone's completely and soundly converted if the change is immediate. And that's what we see in Acts 9, verse 19. Saul spent several days with his disciples at once. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once. Immediately preaching completely opposite from what anything he's done before. And that is going to be pretty hard for the average person to swallow, isn't it? Because a leopard doesn't change its spots. You know that. One swallow doesn't a summer make. And people are not going to alter their perception of a person on the basis of one day of him doing something completely opposite. They're going to wait for a while. They're going to see, is this guy Dinkum? Because they've heard the story of the boy who cried wolf. So we go on to verse 21. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Hey, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on this name? And hasn't he come to take them as prisoners to the high priest? But people talk. But Paul is not phased at all. He's changed. 
And he will keep doing this until they realise that. And in fact, he's going to throw all his intellect and passion into it from now on and be just as thorough as proving that Jesus is the Messiah as he was in trying to disprove that Jesus was the Messiah. Yet, verse 22, yet Paul, Saul grew more and more powerful and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, hometown boy or not, when a few guys goes over to the opposition, it's only going to be tolerated for a little while because the old school tie only stretches so far where it's obvious that you're no longer wearing it. And so verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy amongst the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan and day and night they kept watch on the city gates in order to kill him because, you know, the gates were how you got out. Couldn't climb over the walls, they were too big. And I wonder if Paul realised that this is how life was going to be from now on. This is how it's going to be, guys. They're going to be active enemies. There's going to be threats of death. You're going to have to rely upon the grapevine to hear about what's going on. And there's going to be some creative and hair-raising escapes. As we see in line 25, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. I guess it's a pretty big basket. Well, you've no doubt heard that phrase about going to hell in a handbasket. Well, Saul escapes from hell in a handbasket here. But he's soundly converted and he's going off to, wow, something's different. I'm going off to Jerusalem. I'm going to see all the other believers there. I'm going to join up and have fellowship with all those who love the Lord. He's happy to go, but there is that elephant still in the room, isn't there? Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Well, folks in Damascus had seen he was the real thing, but Damascus is a long way from Jerusalem. And Saul had started there and he'd well and truly created a completely different reputation there. But the Lord had prepared a bridge for Saul to cross over and the bridge was Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Verse 27, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And he just slips in there a little detail about Saul's conversion that he had seen the Lord. Would you like to see the Lord? That's like an amazing privilege, isn't it? To actually see the Lord. But if you yearn for something amazing like that, consider Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And that, that comes from a parable about being watchful until Jesus returns. This is what we should be, verse 35 there. Be dressed, ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. You know, you should never think 
The famous people are just lucky to be famous. But the leaders are just hamming up. They're just having a good time. Because anyone who becomes a successful leader has paid a price, has done the work, has earned his or her place. And Saul had this amazing conversion in order to do an amazing work, which is going to require an amazing perseverance and an amazing endurance of amazing amounts of pain and suffering. So the apostles accepted Saul after Barnabas' presentation and he has a brief period in Jerusalem and of course being Saul he gets stuck into his ministry amongst the people he's been called to, the Hellenistic Jews who are they're just people, Jews who normally lived in other parts of the empire and see what goes on there. Back to chapter 9 of Acts, verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and he moved about freely in Jerusalem and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord and talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. But they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. Now, in some ways, you have to wonder how annoying a person Saul was, don't you? I mean, the art of politics is to say things in the ways that don't upset people. And I'm guessing that Saul didn't actually have that art, didn't really bother with the small talk, didn't bother with the niceties of polite conversation. And I think the fact that it's not long before people want to kill him, it's a pretty good inv indication that he was a very provocative preacher. He was a hard-line preacher. He was a take-no-prisoners orator. But God has plans for this annoying evangelist. He supernaturally intervenes to keep Saul alive and on task. In Acts 22 verse 17, When I returned to Jerusalem, says Saul, and I was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. And then down to verse 21, then the Lord said to me, go, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. And so Saul's time back in Jerusalem is not very long because his mission was obviously to the rest of the world. But the fact that he had been the main instigator of the persecution against the church until Jesus stopped him in his tracks, turned him around and sent him off in his mission leads to this summary of what happened after Saul went in verse 31 in the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and were strengthened. And living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So that's a bit of an overview of the conversion of Saul and I wonder what you've seen in him today. Have you seen the perfect evangelist? Well, there's a little biblical, there's very little biblical description of what he physically looked like. All we've got is a hint in 2 Corinthians 10 for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. And there is sort of some information outside of the, uh, the, the biblical uh, and Christian tradition some writings that didn't make it into the Bible. And there's a book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla, and that has a description of Paul in it, for what it's worth. That 
says that he was a man short in stature with a bald head, bowed legs, in good condition or strongly built, eyebrows that met, a fairly large nose, and full of grace. And they, there are pictures written from back in those days which agree with that. And so he was no movie star. And his legacy was not the fact that he was an entertaining, he was attractive, he was a famous person. But he did have these things. The obvious presence of the Holy Spirit. Acts 19, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and the illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. He also had powerful and effective preaching. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. If you think my sermon's long this morning, <laughs> three-month sermon, <laughs> that would be amazing. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them, took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which I'm led to believe is actually just next door. And they went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so powerful, persistent preaching that got the message out to all of the Jews and Greeks in the whole province. And he was resilient. The height of a rhinoceros, albeit I reckon pretty scarred rhinoceros after a while. 2 Corinthians 11, this is the list. Paul says, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Can't imagine how scary that would be been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I wonder if you got PTSD out of that. I've laboured, I've toiled, I've gone often without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And then, Besides everything else, I feel daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. Who's weak? I and I don't feel weak. Who's led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? And not only did he preach in person, as at his two years of the Hall of Tyrannus in Corinth, he then wrote letters to those he'd visited, to those he was going to visit, and to those he was never going to visit. And those letters have become most of the New Testament. So the extent of the vision of this man is unbelievable. His desire to get the gospel out to the whole world in any way he can has been well and truly achieved because 2,000 years later we're still getting the message from what he wrote. My friends, do you have a hero? Do you have a biblical hero who inspires you? And if you don't, then consider this guy, Paul. At some point, he changed his name from Saul to Paul. He changed it from his uh, Hebrew name to his Greek name. 
and Paul just means small. 2 Corinthians 11.13, if I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. He didn't consider himself a big person. He has no pride to make himself out to be someone famous. He was happy to be Paul Little because he was full of love for his saviour Jesus who had taken him, taken his murderous self, forgiven him of his sins, given him the most important job in the world to do, spread the good news of salvation through faith in the Lord, through faith in the Lord who had arrested his evil pathway, stopped him, dead, forgiven him, and gave him a commission to be an evangelist to the world. Friends, Paul is an amazing example of what God can do through a person totally sold out for him, and I commend him as a wonderful example to all of us this morning. Let us pray. Lord, this man was just amazing when turned around by you. And he's just an amazing man, Lord. I thank you for him. Thank you for his example. And we seek to draw close to you that you may do with our lives what we want. We don't have to be big. We just have to be little. We just have to trust. We just have to follow what you show us and go there with some of the... Let's pick up some of that determination that Saul, who became Paul, had. Let's take some of his spirit away through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>